This show is sponsored by Luna Sushi, Ho Chi Minh City's number one sushi delivery restaurant. Incredible. I actually live above the restaurant. They deliver to all districts, and I've got to tell you, the food is excellent. It's as good a quality of sushi as anything I've had in the States or here in Ho Chi Minh City. The menu's vast. It's delicious. Luna Sushi. Lunasushi.com. Happy Halloween from Citizen 44 with Mark Henry's Bird, live from Quảng Ngãi, Vietnam. everybody, Mark Ehrensberg here recording live from a destroyed kitchen here in central Vietnam. We have electricity now and we have water and uh, all is good here in Quang Ai. Everything's getting cleaned up. Uh, I think the power is on for most of the town. It was quite an intense 24 hours. The event itself was called the Molave, M-O-L-A-V-E storm that barreled down on central Vietnam. This happened two days ago now. It's the most powerful storm in the last 20 years. It approached central Vietnam on Wednesday morning, bringing heavy rains and strong winds, and it came with a vengeance. Thankfully, as I had mentioned to Lean Ann, it happened during the day because I can say for sure that if this happened at night, it would have been absolutely terrifying. But luckily, again, it happened during the day. We had to do the MacGyver kind of securing of windows and doors, and we watched as rooftops were ripped like paper. It was pretty intense, and uh, I'm glad I was here with the family, keeping my equanimity keeping calm and happy the whole time and entertaining the kids and we're all okay. It was certainly an interesting experience. I've never been in any kind of a natural disaster before like that. Of course, being raised in California, plenty of California earthquake experience, but this whole wind and rain thing was a whole another kind of thing. Crazy. Just the whistling and the clattering of the metal roof slamming up and down. It was like an old angry witch. Happy Halloween. We got show number 90 with John Sabot. John Sabot, that's a French name, isn't it? No, it's Norwegian. Oh. Some of my family says Sabo, but I always found growing up that people just automatically said Sabot, so I just kind of went with that. So do you not know for sure how to pronounce your own name? No, that's my name. Okay. You have over 16,000 subscribers on your YouTube channel. Yeah, something like that. Did you know that? Yeah. To me, that's an enormous amount of people interested in what you're doing. And your videos are great, by the way. Oh, cool. I've watched Thanks. several of them. Yeah, thank you. Super informative, and you're having a good time out there. Yes. Hey. 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 
lot of people get off on how many subscribers you got, but really it's about views, how many people are watching your videos, because right. there's lots of people with tons of subscribers, and then you'll look at how many people watch their videos, and it's not that many. And that's all YouTube cares about. There's no algorithm for how many subscribers you have. That's just social value. So if somebody looks at that, you have some social value. If you have like 500,000 subscribers, you got a lot of social value. But when it comes down to it, if you're trying to influence people, how many people are watching the videos? That's what really counts. You do an audio podcast as well as doing these videos, correct? Yeah, I have a couple of podcasts, actually. I have a video podcast and an audio podcast. The video podcast used to have its own exclusive video content, but now it's mostly just what I produce for YouTube. So okay. the same videos usually that you'll see on my video podcast channel, you'll see on my YouTube channel as well. And then I've been doing an audio podcast for four years now. What's the name of your podcast? Far East Travels Podcast. Your videos are also called Far East Travels. YouTube channel is just John Sabo. The video podcast is Far East Travels Video Podcast. And then the audio podcast is Far East Travels Podcast. You're from Canada, correct? Yes. When did you leave Canada? I left full-time seven years ago. And then the previous year, I'd already been in Asia for a few months. And then I came back, spent a few months in Vancouver. That's where I'm from. And then left again, spent a couple months in Taiwan, then went back to Vancouver, packed up and left and haven't been back to live there since. What was your motivation for leaving? I had a pretty successful media career. I'd worked in media for several years in Canada, traditional media like radio mostly and television. And the last job I had was a great job. It was a senior executive general sales manager in a radio cluster in Vancouver. So it's a very good job, but I was downsized. And because I was close to the money, I could see where the industry was going. And it was really a sunset industry. And I thought, well, do I want to spend the rest of my life doing that? We're doing something really fun, and I had no ties, I had no family to hold me back. I was single. I'd been traveling for a few months, and that was kind of to test it out. Was this going to be the right thing to do? And I thought, yeah, this is great. I want to go there. I want to make some content. And the first project was a digital magazine. I loved Asia. I'd been traveling here for many years beforehand. So everything just kind of fell into place. I sold my place. I got rid of most of my stuff. Then I left, and I didn't go back. There's a few people that would be kind of like, well, why do you want to do that? That's kind of crazy. Why are you doing this now, you know? And you try to explain to people, well, like, I'm not the first person to do this. There's lots of people that leave their home country and they go live in other places. And sometimes they come back and sometimes they stay. Yeah, Harry, he's lived here for 30 years. Yeah. There's lots of people you will meet when you travel around Asia and live in Asia that have been living here for a long time. It's not anything new. People do it all the time. This is the second country that I've lived in in Asia, and I've learned a lot since being here full time. I've been traveling here for years before, and I think it's amazing. I think it's a gift to be able to do this. The people that say what we're doing is crazy, it's quite the opposite. The people that are staying where they are and not exploring and having a really robust, adventurous life are the crazy ones. Yeah, true. I just saw this quote from Robert De Niro the other day, and I had said this to a friend of mine I talked to yesterday from Canada who was wanting to come over here. He'd never been to Saigon or Ho Chi Minh City before, and he wants to come over, but obviously with the pandemic right now, that's not going to happen. And he said, well, you know, I want to do one more big trip before I die. And I said, well, yeah, I mean, you got to do stuff now. When you say I should do it, that's when you should do it. The quote that De Niro said was, don't wait to do something that you really want to do. Just do it. <laughs>
no regrets at all. And if something happened to me today, I would feel like I did what I wanted to do with my life. I don't think people understand the power that they wield and allow other things to influence their decision making instead of just seizing the day. I think people would be very scared if they realize how much power they do have and the thoughts that they have in their mind and how those thoughts influence them, whether they're negative or positive. People carry a lot of negative thoughts in their head. And if they knew how much of an impact that had on their life, I think it'd be pretty scary to them. The fact that people don't really understand how to leverage this experience, whereby you do control most of what happens. So your thoughts are super powerful. And if your intention is negative, you're going to have that kind of response to your energy. Yeah. And people don't know that if you don't like what you are doing, if you change what you are doing, you will get a different result. This is automatic universal law. It is entirely up to you to decide what the outcome is. Yeah. People don't really understand that they wield that kind of power. Yeah. And it's sad because we all have it. It's innate. It's part of the offering when we get here. You're invited to this amazing party. You get to party however you want. But if you decide to follow somebody else's story, somebody else's belief system, somebody else's actions, that's the result you're going to get. Yeah. What was it like growing up in Canada? I have no point of reference. It's pretty nice growing up there. I mean, um, I lived in Vancouver, mostly. Climate's fairly mild there. We don't get nasty winters like you do on the prairies or in Eastern Canada. The weather would be kind of like Washington, Oregon. You were born in the 60s, right? Yep. What was going on back there in the 60s? We lived in a place called North Delta. This is a suburb of the Vancouver area, and we lived on a small five-acre farm, and then we moved to another suburb that was sort of an up-and-coming, had a little more status to it, called Quitlam. And I think they moved there because of the schools, and it was maybe a last ditch to try to keep the marriage going, because my parents absolutely hated each other, listening to fights every night, and oh, it was terrible. I always wanted to be in a city, so whenever I had a chance, when I got old enough, I'd get on the bus and go to Vancouver and go buy records or hang out there. And that's where I wanted to be. I didn't like the suburbs. I loved the city. And I've been like that ever since. Hence, you're in Saigon. Yeah. What was your father doing for a living? He was called a supercargo, and he worked on the docks. He was in charge of cargo, mostly going onto ships. And in the language of shipping, there's different levels of managers and that. My uncle was a stevedore, and my uncle would oversee supercargoes. And that still is a position today throughout the world. You will have a supercargo, stevedore, and the stevedore manages the guys that are managing the cargo coming and going. And that's what my father did. So he worked with longshoremen, so probably drank a lot because of the environment. I think he just drank a lot because he grew up in northern Alberta and there was nothing to do there. My mom was a housewife, mostly. How many brothers and sisters? Two brothers and two sisters. How'd you get along with your brothers and sisters? Pretty good. You know, if your older brother and older sister liked something you did, that was pretty cool. Yeah. I kind of did my own thing, mostly. What are the age ranges of your brothers and sisters? 
My oldest sister is 13 years older than me. My older brother, who was killed in a motorcycle accident when he was 24, was seven years older than me. And then my younger brother's three years younger than me, and my youngest sister is five years younger than me. Are they all still in Canada? Yeah, they all live in British Columbia. Okay. Yeah. So you were the one who flew the nest. Yeah. What do they think? Yeah, they totally supported it, especially my brother. He was like, no, this is what you should do. You know, you have to do this. This is in you. Of course, they miss me and I miss them as well, but total support. Were you someone who was bored in school? Yeah, I would fake sick a lot. Were you like Epstein? Did you write your own notes? No, I didn't do that. I just would be like, I don't feel good today. Okay, just stay in bed. Was your mom cool with all that? Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, I look back at that. I think I just did that because it was just a stress reliever. Because being in school is just so normal. Like being with everybody else in a classroom. I remember getting assignments if I was sick for a week and actually doing really well when I was working from home, (laughs) you know, like you do now. I was way more efficient and productive at home. And I remember one school grade I was in and our teacher gave us a little more autonomy. Like she would just give us assignments and then, okay, like you've got this amount of time to do and work at your own pace. I did excellent in classes like that when I had that opportunity. I think being at home is just like, okay, I can't take this. I'm not a conformer. You were rebelling. Yes. There is nothing more fun than working in your underwear. We are doing this from Luna Sushi, lunasushi.com. Lunasushi.com. We did this last time with Harry Hobson, and uh, we're actually videotaping some of this oh, now. There we are. It's the first time I looked up at this thing. I remember you told me you were going to videotape it. I'm like, okay. And there's June over there. Yeah. Hi, June. So we met recently, you and I, yeah. through June here. Yeah. June and I were having coffee down on Book Street, meeting for the first time. We met on Instagram. So we're sitting there having this lovely conversation. And then I'd see maybe your blue hat go by and she goes, I know that guy. And she literally gets up and runs after you and then brings you back. And we sat around for a couple hours chit-chatting about this, that, and the other. And one at a time. It seems to be a great way in Ho Chi Minh City to build your relationships. Yeah. So at some point, you realize that you have a very unique voice. Yeah. When did that first begin? Well, it was in high school. And basically, I wanted to be a recording engineer. I wanted to, you know, work with bands and mix music. And then the high school I went to had its own little radio station, which I thought was really cool. And I remember reading, hey, if you want to get into the music business, joining your high school radio station is a really good thing to put on your resume or just good experience to get. So I did it. We had a little studio and a board and a microphone, and I loved it right away. So I started doing it, and within a year, I had a job in the real business. My friend got me a job at a radio station, and I was still in high school. I had friends that were working in fast food places or sweeping floors and being a janitor or stuff like that, and I'm working in a radio station with people that were actually quite well-known at the time in Vancouver in the broadcasting business. When I started doing this, people would say to me, hey, you should do that for a living. It just started organically like that. When you started in this radio station, what were you doing? There was a couple of jobs I had. One job was to gather information for the traffic reporter that was in the plane. I would phone the police stations and find out about accidents and phone the highways and find out about things. And then 
I would radio the woman that was the eye in the sky reporter in the plane, go see this, go see this, and then pilot and fly her over where this accident was, I mean, all that type of stuff. And I would do that starting at 6.30 in the morning till like 8.30, and then in the afternoon from 3.30 to 6. And then the other job was a board operator. I would run programs that were pre-recorded, and then I would also run hockey games. And I would run the commercials and all the programming and make sure the news people were on time and all that type of stuff. When did your big break come? When did you hit the microphone? We had a sponsor, Kodak. Kodak sponsored time checks. So the time check was brought to you by Kodak. And they said, well, why don't you just do it? Because it was a live announcement. And, you know, I couldn't get another announcer to tape it because it was whatever the time was. So I did it. And they're like, yeah, that's good. And then they started giving me more things to do. And I worked in the daytime sometimes with the talk show hosts. And I would coordinate from the control room, the commercials and all that. And then I would come on and do a weather break or something and kind of grew from that. Did you end up with your own show? No, not there. I went to college for not quite two semesters. And then I got a job in a radio station just outside of the city, 50 or 60 miles away from Vancouver. That was my first full-time radio show. And I did that for, I guess, about a year. And then I had a break. We had a recession and there was layoffs and I was one of the people laid off. So I had the summer off, which wasn't a bad thing. And then I got a call from that radio station that I originally worked for, and they said, uh, put together a tape, we might be able to use you. So I did a tape, and they're like, yeah, okay, let's do a couple shows and see how it goes. Then I started doing my own shows there on their AM station and their FM station, which were completely different formats. And then eventually I ended up being on the FM station full-time. That was my first really big full-time radio gig. What was the show? It was an all-night music show, actually. I worked midnight to 6 a.m., playing whatever was big at the time. After that, there were some changes at that radio station. They were going to offer me something that was less. And I said, nah, it's okay. I'm out of here. And I got a job across the street within a month that was way better, paid more. It was a top 40 station. And my dream was to be a top 40 DJ. I think I worked there for four years. It was one of the best times of my career. I had a partner, we did a syndicated jazz show for a year. We found our own radio stations, and then I got into teaching, and I taught broadcasting for a couple of years. I kind of brought that component back into what I'm doing now, and it's a lot of fun. I mean, I'm working with this one guy right now with his YouTube channel, and it's really nice to hear somebody say, wow, you know, I just didn't know anything a month ago, and I feel so much more confident now and comfortable doing this. And we did his first video the other day, and he was just so excited. So it's really neat to see people sort of bloom get the confidence, and then they're able to do something that's been stirring inside them for a long time, but they just didn't have anybody to help them get it going. You know what it takes, and then you remember what it took to get to where you were, and then you can see those things inside of other people, and then you just kind of pull out the best parts and say, do this, I like this. Usually when I'm coaching people, I am definitely not the person, hey, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. I'll find something that's really good, and I'll say, do more of that. After that teaching part of my broadcasting career, I left broadcasting for a few years and I got into a sales career. And then I ended up going back into broadcasting as a sales executive. I kind of did a full circle. No matter where I have been, what kind of job I do, the coaching part is always interesting. I've worked with some pretty difficult people, but usually the most difficult people are also a lot of times the most talented. And they're also your best teachers. Yeah, they do teach you. You learn a lot about yourself. 
but you also learn how to get out of the way of people as well. Yeah. People are going to be how they're going to be. Yeah. We're not here to change anybody, honestly. Yeah. We're just trying to accommodate people as much as we can. Yeah. A lot of people are not having a good time. It's true. Which is very sad because I'm having a great time and I have more empathy for people who haven't figured out how to have fun. Sometimes I feel the majority of people just aren't doing what they really want to do. I think if you're not being creative, this is the suffering of our planet. We are all creative. You're not more creative than anybody else. It's just a matter of getting exposed to the potential that you have. And I think most people never discover all these amazing things about themselves. Yeah, that's what we're really here for. If you don't live your dream, you're going to live somebody else's dream. We're saying to our children, what do you want to do instead of what do you want? Yeah. I don't think anybody really knows what they want and no one's ever asked them in that way. So there's not that contemplation about their life. There's not that getting deeper into trying to examine what the potential is for themselves because we're not there for each other. Yeah, the problem too, Mark, I think you'll agree with me, is that society always has to put some kind of a monetary value to something that you do right away. Whatever kind of creativity that you want to channel out, it might take a few years before you're making money doing yeah. it. And a lot of society will be like, okay, you want to be, say, a writer. Okay, well, are you making any money at it? Well, then why are you doing it? I remember this interview I heard years ago that Margaret Atwood did, and I don't know if you know Margaret Atwood, she's a very famous Canadian writer. She said about writing, it was only a value when I was making money at it. And I was writing long before I started making money at it. Okay, I'm a writer, but why do I have to make money at it? Why is it something that has to put a dollar to it? I mean, we all have to live, we have to pay the rent and things like that. But I thought what she made was a good point. What I'm doing now, I didn't just jump into that from my career. It took me a long time to develop this and build up the contacts or let people find out about what I do to be able to do what I'm doing now and sustain myself. It didn't just happen. I didn't just jump from one thing to another. I had to have things to keep myself going while I was building this. And I think it's the same thing for any kind of creative person. People really don't realize too. Some of the most famous artists in the world came from wealthy families. They were supported financially. They were able to keep doing what they were doing. Not everybody can do that. There's nothing wrong with taking a gig on the side to keep yourself going while you're doing something that's more focused on your creativity or being an artist. Nothing wrong with doing that at all because you're still living your dream. You might be helping somebody else with theirs while you're living your dream. And I see this in different cultures as well, that there has to be a certain dollar amount put to it or else why are you doing it? Well, we have a preoccupation with monetary value versus human value. And it's literally backwards. Yeah. And because of that, we are getting this particular result, which is a lot of unhappy humans just trying to pay their bills instead of really living. And until we decide that the human is far more valuable than the dollar, we are going to struggle. The people that really truly want you to be successful and do well will stay by you no matter what. You just want those people anyways. The other ones, they're of no use to you. I was super career driven and I was married in my 20s. I got married really young. But if you are single and you live in the United States or Canada or the UK, once we're over this pandemic thing and you want to get out there and try something different, try living in a different place, you know, there's a lot of countries that your country will have an agreement with for work visas. So you can actually live abroad for a year somewhere where normally it would be really difficult to do that. 
so you can get these working holiday visas. Mm -hmm. So if you're from Canada or the UK, I'm not sure about the United States, how many agreements they have. I think they have it with like a place like Japan. You can get a one year working holiday visa. It allows you to work and then you can live in that place and try it out for a year and do something different. It's not easy to do that when you get older, but I think the age cutoff is like 30 or sometimes it's 35. I think they're looking at extending it though, which I hope they do. I like living in Saigon or Ho Chi Minh City because of all of the history and the culture and there's tons of stuff to talk about here. I'm really inspired by all of this architecture and the energy and... I think it's the coolest place I've ever been, to be honest with you. Well, look at these roofs that we're looking at right now. Those are sort of the Chinese style roofs there. And then there's a mix of tin roofs. I mean, there's kind of like a little mixed neighborhood here, but we're around so much influence of architecture from France and different eras. And we're about a 12 minute walk from where the Vietnam War ended. It's pretty amazing. It's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I love being here. Yeah. Well, when I drove a taxi after I came back from Thailand, I would have college students in the back of my car. And I would tell them for the price of an iPhone, you can go someplace and see something and be changed for life. Just go away for a month, get a different purview of what's happening outside your little bubble and you expand your consciousness to be part of something bigger. You have to go out to it. Yeah. It's very easy to do these things. You just have to do it. It's not complicated. It's actually cheaper to fly internationally than it is nationally in America. You can fly from Los Angeles to a lot of Asian destinations for three or four hundred dollars. That's what I'm talking about. You can yeah. go from L.A. to Bangkok for under five hundred dollars. You can't go from L.A. to New York for five hundred dollars. Yeah, exactly. Did you know that only 36% of Americans hold passports? Yeah, I just had this conversation with my ex-wife yesterday because as she sees the eminent results of whatever is going to happen politically in the United States, she's preparing to depart. <laughs> and she does not have a passport. Now, my daughter took her birthright trip to Israel about three, four months ago. She had never left the country before. She had an incredible experience, which is why I want to bring her here because she got that taste. Once you get that travel taste, that bug, you can't get rid of it because there is nothing. I think literally there may be nothing more gratifying than travel. Even relationships with other human beings, I don't think honestly can compete with what it feels like to go someplace else because you don't even know where you've been until you leave. You yeah. can't have that contrast of where you are until you go someplace else to see where you've been. And I think there's a lot of incredible, empowering stuff that can happen by leaving your comfort zone. Yes. It makes you grow as a human being. Yeah. Well, I had this dream in 2010. I had my corporate job in Canada and I'd taken a just over three week trip to Tibet. And I remember going to talk to the accountant about time off. I was just getting his advice and he thought, you're crazy doing this as an executive. They don't want you to do stuff like this. But I thought to myself, I don't care. It's my life and I'm glad I did it. So I did this three week trip to Tibet and the general manager approved it and everything, it was fine. But on the tail end of that trip, on the back end of that trip was a three day or four day stay in Kathmandu, Nepal. And the trip to Tibet is absolutely mind blowing and life changing for me. I thought to myself, I don't think this life that you thought that you strive for is really the path for you. That was the seed that was planted in that trip. 
and I thought to myself, if I could find a job where I could work from my laptop and live in a place like this for a couple months, really experience it, that would be great. Well, that's what I do now. And what I really like to emphasize on my YouTube channel with my videos, my mission is to get people to really do that when they travel, to go deeper, to go to the non-tourist places, to have exchanges with local people, to get a different perspective on what the people are really like. And that's where I've gotten the most joy out of my travels. We can uncreate and recreate on the fly whatever we want to do. If you subscribe to something, that is your choice. It's hard to pull away from certain institutional ideas that have been rammed down our throats as this is it. But this ain't it. Politics ain't it. None of that's it. It's only it because you subscribe and participate in it. But it ain't shit compared to what isn't. And there's plenty more what isn't that can be than what is, which is super finite. It ain't shit because it ain't it. It ain't it. <laughs> You're like a four minute walk from here, right? Yeah. We're in Dachau in District 1 and it's a ward. Yeah, I'm literally like a few steps away from you here. It's yeah. great. Yeah. yeah, it was awesome being here. And uh, you took me to places in this interview I never thought I was going to go and it was a lot of fun. I had a lot of fun too. And June's here and I think we're going to have a little meal together. I'm so blessed to meet both of you and I really appreciate you coming on the show, John. Thanks, Mark. Well, that's the show. I hope you enjoyed it. I want to thank John Sabo for coming out to Luna Sushi and doing a little sit down with me. Super great guy. Love bumping into him all over town. Easy to hang out with. Don't forget to check out his podcast and his other YouTube stuff. Just look up John Sabo, S-A-B-O-E, and you'll find all kinds of interesting things to listen to and watch. I also want to thank my family in Quangai. It was really a wonderful week, even with the storm. It was a fantastic experience. We all slept on the floor together, storm or not. That's how the Vietnamese operate. This is really a family mentality, and it was Linan's sister, Foon, her husband, Viet, and their two children, and then uh, later, Linan's friend, Young, came out from Saigon, and we all slept on the floor on these three-inch mattresses, and it was fantastic. I didn't think that I would be able to do that, but uh, I can do that. I think I'm becoming more Vietnamese as time goes on. Anyway, it was a fantastic week out there in central Vietnam, the longest I've been away from Ho Chi Minh City. I'm honored to have spent time with Lean Ann and her family. Just a big family affair. I think the whole storm brought us closer, kind of a bonding experience, and I appreciated the whole thing. Citizen 44 with Mark Ahrensberg is a listener-supported presentation. You can listen to all shows on CastBox, iTunes, and Stitcher. 
things are what they are for as long as they are until there's something else. But as far as I'm concerned, even with everything that's going on, COVID and otherwise, I'm having a good time. And I will continue to have a good time and report me having a good time to you about my good time being had by me. Thanks so much for listening to the show. As always, I appreciate it. Take care. Bye-bye. This show is produced, engineered, mixed, edited, recorded, and presented to you by Mark Ahrensberg. The song Departure Family at the end of each show is by Lucky Doug Fergus. Thank you, Sam, Zoe, and Val. This show is sponsored by Luna Sushi. Lunasushi.com Happy Halloween! <laughs> if whatever you're doing is not working, there's one way you can change that, and that's to change what you do, 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 change what you do. Yes. I am Citizen 44.